Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Owl Man of Greenhill Coppice by Ian Gordon. Preface Two figures sat in silence in the relative quiet of Kane's rare books. One was the shop's proprietor, Norman Kane, the false-armed Lancastrian antiquarian. The other was Key Phillips, a.k.a. Wax, a student of art and design, and Kane's assistant. The silence was a little awkward for Kane, as he wasn't sure how to break it. Wax, an outspoken young lady at the best of times, had surprised her employer by blurting, quite innocently, a question that had made the hairs on the back of his neck stand on end. It was a question that very few had asked before, a question that Kane had refused to answer, for the response was difficult to provide, due to both the dormant emotions it stirred in the men, and the convoluted details relating to the cause. "'Have I overstepped?' came the considered words of wax. This query roused her employer from his reveries. "'No,' he uttered. "'Not at all. It's just that, well, it's a long and strange story.' Wax smiled, her big brown eyes wide with expectation. Kane glanced at the mantel clock perched atop a bookshelf labelled Juvenilia. It was a little after five p.m. The shop had just closed, and Wax's shift had just ended. "'You'll be heading off in a minute, won't you?' Kane asked. "'What do you think?' said the young student, adjusting her red-rimmed glasses. Kane sighed, and raised a plastic limb, inviting her to join him by the piano, a favoured spot for a yarn. Silence was resumed, as the two made themselves comfortable by the vintage upright. Two glasses were plucked from a hidden drawer, into which Kane poured a splash of clear liquid from a hip flask. Wax frowned. If you want to hear this story, her employer droned, then you'll join me in a drink. It's a deal, Wax agreed, sniffing at the contents of the tumbler cautiously. Kane took a sip from his own glass, then sat back in the creaky chair, gazing off into space. It happened in eighty-six. He began, his mind's eye now fixed on the memory of a fateful visit to Bodmin in the rugged county of Cornwall. 1. Friday, October 3rd, 1986 Norman Kane, a young man of twenty-four years, considered himself something of an explorer. His passion for rare books had been instilled in him at a young age, thanks to the copious collection of tomes his father had acquired over a span of forty years. Richard Kane had been something of an explorer himself, travelling the length and breadth of Britain in quest of unusual and hard-to-find volumes. These adventures, in which a fledgling Norman was often hurled into the back of a maroon Morris Marina, served to fire the boy's imagination. Whether the two were tiptoeing between aisles at Aberdeen Central Library, or scouring the mismatched shelves of backstreet book dealers in Canterbury. But though his father's collection was impressive, comprising, in the main, early editions of such classic works as Dracula and The Tale of Peter Rabbit, 
teenage Norman felt himself drawn towards lesser-known rarities, this being the result of a chance encounter with such a book in the seaside town of Mablethorpe, Lincolnshire. Richard had spotted the inconspicuous-looking volume on a dusty shelf belonging to a short-lived charity shop called Rummage. "'What is it?' Norman had inquired of his father. "'Never you mind,' had been Richard's immediate reply, as he collected the blank-covered paperback and proceeded to purchase it for a nominal fee. Norman eventually learned that his father's discovery was a book called Cloaked, a collection of supernatural accounts compiled by the occult researcher Dick Sellers, a volume Norman would later rely upon when pitted against the deadly entity Swator in the ancient city of York. And so it was with memories of days out with his father that Cain found himself traipsing up and down the autumnal streets of Bodmin in search of hidden gems. He'd exhausted the coastal towns of Mevagissi and St. Hostel, choosing instead to try his luck further inland. Along Four Street, by the bottom of Beacon Hill, the young man came across the plainly titled store Bodmin Books. In he went, instantly taken by the fine display of local literature in the window. Inside, Kane was greeted by the shop's owner, a middle-aged redhead who offered the intrepid hunter an ear-to-ear grin, and a tour of the shop, should he need it. Waving a dismissive thanks, he took it upon himself to explore alone, and disappeared into the labyrinthine heart of the store. It was deceptively vast. Descending a spiral staircase, for he always preferred the bottom-up approach, Kane found himself in what appeared to be a reading room, a chaotic one at that. Stacks of books lay higgledy-piggledy about the place, overlooked by tall shelves filled with tomes piled both horizontally and vertically, a detail that made the young bibliophile shudder. A large desk consumed the centre of the space, it too covered with myriad volumes, and it soon became apparent that somebody was at work down there, this evidenced by a half-empty cup of tea and the lingering smell of cigarette smoke. Moments later, a figure emerged from one of the room's numerous nook-like aisles. "'Hello,' said the stranger, spotting Kane at the foot of the stairs. "'Hello,' he echoed, trying to mask the frown the state of the place had encouraged. The stranger returned to the desk, sat himself down, and took a sip from the cup. The man was tall, thin, and adorned in what Kane could only perceive as some sort of costume, a long black overcoat thrown over a garish velvet blazer, under that a tight-fitting purple waistcoat framing a bright white shirt and a jet-black tie, with short dark hair forced back with copious amounts of wax. A gaunt visage peered down at a journal of sorts, to which the man was now committing sentence after sentence in a cramped hand. To Kane's probing eye, it appeared as though the man had been camped out in the subterranean chamber for a good while, a curious look of expectancy stamped on his bony face. Sensing that he'd had his eyes on the man for far too long, Kane went about his business, scouring the shelves, shaking his head in dismay at the lack of order on display. He'd been in and out of a couple of aisles and was moving in the direction of the stairs, when the stranger spoke up again. After anything in particular? 
came the friendly question. Uh, not really, Kane muttered. Oh, the stranger said, shrugging his shoulders. Just as well, really, he continued, looking about him. You'd have a devil of a job finding anything down here. Kane chuckled at this, saying, <laughs> I have to admit, it's not the tidiest shop I've ever seen. The man at the desk grinned, revealing a set of pearly white gnashes. For some reason or other, Kane's curiosity got the better of him, and he asked, Are you working down here? <coughs> Conducting research, the stranger said, stifling a cough in the process. I'm an investigator, you know. Yeah? uttered Kane, dumbly. What are you investigating? Well, now, the man at the desk said, turning his attention to the journal before him. He leafed through it in reverse, before arriving at a page with a map sketched on it. There's a village not far from here, he continued, tapping the map. They've had a few run-ins with something as of late. I'm swatting up on the local folklore before heading up there. Run-ins with something? Kane repeated, frowning. Here the man simply nodded, as though hesitant to elaborate. What's the name of the village? Kane asked. Uh, Greenhill Coppice, said the stranger. Kane shook his head. Don't know it. Few do, the man said. It's a very insular community, and I mean that positively. Again, Kane frowned. There was something odd about his present company, and not just in the things the stranger was saying. There was an oddness in the way he was saying them. His statements were guarded, as though testing the waters. Colour me intrigued, Kane said. It's an intriguing case, continued the stranger. One of the oddest I've been summoned to investigate. And just what kind of investigator are you? Kane managed. The paranormal kind, the stranger volunteered at last. Ah, Kane breathed, nodding. You've an interest in the subject? The man went on. Kane thought for a moment before answering. Had he an interest in the paranormal? Well, of course he had. The horror anthologies gifted him as a boy— the off-limits volumes his father kept under lock and key. Those stories Grandma Martin used to tell by the fire at Christmas. And that thing he saw at Mornington House in Rutley. He'd never forget that as long as he lived. I suppose I have, he said, his mind awash with childhood memories. Can you tell me anything about these run-ins you mentioned? They say it's the Owl Man, the stranger announced, his former restraint abandoned. Owl man? Kane uttered. As in the owl man of morning? The stranger's eyes widened. You really do have an interest in the subject, he blurted. They've seen the owl man up here? Kane went on, his face glowing with excitement. So they tell me, the man continued, though it's the presence of the book that drove it home for me. The young bookworm took a step forward, repeating in hushed tones, Book? Yes the man said. An old book. A forbidden book. The appearance of the Owl Man seems to be connected in some way to this book. When you asked earlier if I was after anything in particular, Kane said tentatively, Well, I can tell you that I'm a collector of rare books. Forbidden books are often the rarest of all. The stranger nodded. This is true, he said, and I don't mind telling you. I wouldn't refuse a bit of company on this one. Startled, Kane retreated a step. Uh, company? 
was all he could marshal. The man at the desk simply said, What do you say? I'd probably start by asking who you are. The name's Van Melsen. Peter Van Melsen. And you are? Norman Keane. The stranger, now identified as Peter Van Melsen, climbed to his feet and approached Keane. Extending his arm, he said, Pleased to make your acquaintance, Norman. Likewise, Kane replied, extending an arm in return, an arm of flesh and blood at that. Then, as though the mere shaking of hands had sealed the deal, Van Melsen said, Shall we talk details then? A short while later, the young book collector, Norman Kane, and his new associate, the mysterious investigator, Peter Van Melsen, had arranged for a private hire vehicle to drive them to the glorious forest, Cardenham Woods, a few miles east of Bodmin. The forest stood at the very southwest edge of the expansive Bodmin Moor, the moor proper being a particularly remote region of windswept hills, home to Brown Willie, Cornwall's highest peak. The driver of the hire car dropped the pair off at a seemingly isolated stretch of Margate Lane, a spot Van Melsen had specified, as it was important, he'd whispered to Kane, that nobody knew their destination. The area, naturally, was thickly populated with trees, the canopies above forming a number of covered passageways, any one of which might lead them to Greenhill Coppice. This way, Van Melsen announced, striding off in an easterly direction, his heavy boots crushing the amber leaves that covered the ground. The investigator had been prepared for the adventure. The young explorer, not so much. Kane had booked two nights at a quiet guesthouse in the centre of Bodmin, and it had been necessary to call at his room to change into the most appropriate outfit he could find. Fortunately, his hiking shoes were a staple when on the hunt, and, given the time of year, though applicable at any time of year in Britain, his fleece and raincoat had accompanied him too. Van Melsen had assured him that lodgings would be available in the village, and, given the fact that it was late in the afternoon, with a bit of a walk ahead of them, such lodgings would be most welcome, as the idea of backtracking alone through a tract of forest after dark didn't really do it for Kane. "'How far is the village from here?' Kane asked. The gaunt figure withdrew a cigarette at that moment, and lit it with a sleek metal lighter. "'Well,' he said, inhaling deeply. No more than a mile or so. As I said, we want to arrive in Greenhill with as little fanfare as possible. What else can you tell me? Kane pressed, his eyes dancing back and forth between the investigator and the massive birch trees towering above them. I've a contact at the Breadwinner's Grotto. Mr. Winkler, the landlord. He'd read an article of mine in a minor publication. Called me directly— it seems the villagers at Greenhill have been suffering at the hands of this thing for some weeks now. No attacks as of yet, though. Kane frowned. In what way have they been suffering? Other than the fact they're seeing a giant feathered man with a pair of wings and the head of an owl? <laughs> I can't imagine. Here the investigator chuckled, puffing on his cigarette. Kane managed to laugh, too though it didn't quite disguise his horror at hearing a description of the Owl-Man. His recollections of the creature, as described in the 1976 Morning Case, were similar to Van Melsen's description, 
in that a feathered birdman was sighted above the tower of St. Mornin and St. Stephen's Church. Another report, just a few months after the first, saw two young girls claiming they'd had an encounter with a big owl with pointed ears, as big as a man, with glowing eyes and black, pincer-like claws. Numerous reports of sightings followed throughout the late seventies, some adding the detail of a loud, owl-like sound the creature had ostensibly made. Teenage Cain had ingested such tales with fervor, thrilled by the idea that creatures fitting the description of the Owl-Man might just exist on the periphery of human consciousness. Was he about to encounter the Owl-Man firsthand? He was both ecstatic and horrified by the prospect. 2. A brisk hike along the leaf-strewn track had delivered the unlikely duo to their destination in a little over thirty minutes. By now, the sun was setting in the east, casting an autumnal glow over the quaint village. They stood at the edge of Greenhill Coppice, atop a small acclivity from which the pair were able to view the entire settlement, nestled in the broad, rolling grove from which it got its name. Stone buildings filled the space below, grey granite cottages in the main, with a few notable landmarks scattered throughout. The village hall with its distinctive clock tower, the market hall, its cast iron and glass roof radiant, and standing tall in the north of the village, St. Bartholomew's Church, its neo-Gothic style quite incongruous with its surroundings. Vast birches and oaks enclose the settlement, sheltering it from the world at large. In the light of the fading sun, Greenhill appeared warm and friendly, not a bit the cold and foreboding place Cain had expected to find. Picturesque, eh? Van Melsen commented, looking at the young, green-eyed man at his side. It is that, Cain returned, taking it all in. The investigator lit another cigarette. See the church? He continued, pointing at St. Bart's. Kane nodded. Winkler tells me the owl man can be seen some nights perched on the cross at the top. Kane stared at the unusual reddish-brown church, noting its loftiness and the severity of its precipitously pitched roof. But what caught and held his attention was the grand south-facing rose window, a vast stained-glass eye that seemed to serve as an eerie sentinel high above the village. He could easily envision the monstrous Owl-Man atop the apex of that ghastly shrine, and found himself shuddering uncontrollably. "'Are you all right?' Van Melsen asked. "'Oh, yeah,' Kane blurted, clearing his throat. "'Come on,' the investigator said, stepping onto the gravel road to which the leafy trail had transported them. Following a brief trot, passing several pretty quiet cottages— the pair located the breadwinner's grotto, little more than a cottage itself, its granite walls capped with neat thatching. The pub signboard was notable, depicting a rotund gentleman with a mound of black fuzzy hair on his face and head, guzzling from a foaming tankard. "'Looks like an amiable chap,' Kane muttered, drawing a chuckle from the investigator. It was around 6pm when the two entered the establishment— and it was already busy. This, in part, was due to the fact that it was a Friday, 
but mainly owing to recent events, which, by the looks on the faces of the punters within, had spooked the villagers thoroughly. The unlikely duo paused on the threshold of the pub, allowing a moment or two for the surprised men and women indoors to resume their hushed discussions. The landlord, Mr. Winkler, or Jim, as he was known locally, rushed over to greet the pair, evidently recognising the investigator from the minor publication he had alluded to earlier. "'Mr. Van Melson,' came the words of Winkler through gritted teeth. "'You made it.' "'Indeed,' Van Melson affirmed, shaking Winkler's proffered hand. "'Pleased to meet you.' "'Likewise,' Winkler said, turning his attention to the shorter fellow by his side. "'A friend of yours, sir?' "'A colleague,' the investigator immediately replied. "'This is Mr. Kane.' Winkler gripped Kane's hand with fervour, grinning like the proverbial Cheshire cat. A nervous energy radiated from the man. Kane observed that the landlord of the Breadwinner's Grotto wasn't too far removed from the character emblazoned on the signboard outside. An older chap, possibly mid-fifties, and massive, with bundles of black hair that probably hadn't seen a pair of scissors in decades. The friendly giant escorted the men to a back room of the pub, where drinks were poured for the gasping visitors. It was a tidy, welcoming room, tastefully wallpapered, and furnished with a couple of cracked leather Chesterfields. Van Melsen lit a cigarette, and a discussion followed concerning the current situation in Greenhill. For the benefit of my friend here, the investigator said, intimating Kane, please start from the beginning. Winkler nodded and exhaled hoarsely. Well, the man said, scratching his beard, I suppose it all started with old Blakely. He owns the lodge across the way, lived here his entire life. Best part of ninety years, you know. He was away on holiday this summer, up in Devon at his sister's place. Near Ilfracombe, not far from the coast. Blinding spot it is. No houses for miles, just the hills and the sea. Went up that way myself once. Kane took a sip from the tumbler in his hand. It was apparent to both him and Van Melsen that Winkler's narrative would be full of such asides. Patience would be an important commodity as the evening wore on. Anyways, Big Jim went on. He's up there, near Hilfricum, perusing the recently acquired wares of a middle-of-nowhere store called The Ole in the Wall. They sell junk, you know, stuff they pick up during house clearances and what not. Well, old Blakely's sifting through this pile of books, he says, when he spots something unusual, a trifling little thing that looks right out of place next to the likes of your Oxford Learner's Dictionary and what not. Winkler took a sip from his own tumbler, wincing as he did so. Old Blakely picks it up, pays a fiver for it. It's an occult manual, he says. A reproduction, he adds. But so rare as to fetch a small fortune if he can put it in the hands of the right buyer. Kane, listening with great interest now, leaned forward, the leather beneath him crackling. Did he tell you the name of the book? He asked. Oh, yeah, Big Jim replied. Milleth. A moment of silence followed. Van Melsen's eyes narrowed as he puffed on the cigarette. Kane was unfamiliar with the book in question, which, as was often the case when he was on the hunt for rare treasures, set his heart racing. Just out of interest, 
said the investigator. Does old Blakely have any idea where the dealers at the Hole in the Wall acquired this book? I wouldn't know, said Winkler. You'd have to ask him yourself. Nodding, Van Melsen gestured for Big Jim to continue. The sound of clinking tumblers resounded throughout the room. Well, the big man continued, he brought the book back here with the intention of sitting on it for a while. Said he needed to do a bit of reading on the subject of rare book dealers. What a golden oldie like Blakely would want with a pile of cash at his age, I haven't the foggiest. But there he was, confined to his little office, making calls here and there, but for the most part getting nowhere. Here Winkler paused, a pensive expression taking over his face. Guests at the lodge came and went, with a good few of them, and I know this having overheard them here at the pub, saying Greener Lodge was a weird place to stay, that the old man could be heard at night babbling to himself in his study, that the corridors up and down the place were plastered with strange pictures and newspaper clippings, and this is the weirdest part of all, that at the end of their stay, the lodge seemed bigger than it had been when they'd checked in. Bigger? This from Kane. Longer corridors, doors where before there'd been only walls. Strange, eh? Kane nodded, a befuddled look filling his features. It was as he reached for his tumbler that he caught Van Melsen gawping at him. The investigator's eyes were wide, as if to say, See what I mean? Big Jim went on. Come the middle of September, the tourists had all but stopped passing through. An old Blakely closed his doors. Shortly afterwards, September 16th it was, Nigel, our fishmonger, stormed in here around 7pm, kicking up a fuss about something he'd seen on top of St. Bart's. The old man? This, again, from Kane. Winkler nodded, saying, There's something on top of the church, Nigel was wailing. God help me if it isn't a giant owl. Of course, we all rushed out. A bunch of us, not really expecting to see anything. But I swear by God Almighty, there it was. The Owl Man, just as I'd heard it described in the morning case back in 76. Enormous it was. To be clear, the cross on top of St. Bart's is almost ten feet tall, and this thing was taller still. Huge, broad wings, giant feathers shimmering in the twilight. I mean, it's a good way from here to the church, but... There was no mistake in what we were seeing, and worst of all, the eyes of the thing, glowing like rubies, burning torches they were, unmissable. Both Kane and Van Melsen were practically standing now, glued to the words of the trembling landlord. That was a little over two weeks ago, Winkler said, and we've seen it a handful of times since. It's an omen, I know it is and it has something to do with that damned book old Blakely brought back with him. I know it has. Big Jim paused for breath, his wheezing much more prevalent now. Van Melsen lit yet another cigarette, while Kane sat in contemplative silence, his hand stroking the stubble decorating his plump chin. When we spoke over the phone, the investigator said, you said you'd try to have a word with old Blakely about the possibility of him taking a guest. Winkler nodded, saying, I did, and I did. And? It was hard work convincing him to talk to me, Big Jim said. Spent half an hour yelling through the letterbox, you know. But in the end he gave in, 
spoke to him through a crack in the door, could just about make him out in the gloom, all gaunt and grubby. Told him you were a rare book dealer, interested in taking a look at his copy of Milleth. Kane eyed Van Melsen at this point. The investigator grinned, and in that moment the young man felt as though he was meant to be in that room, that it had been predetermined somehow. He had questions for Peter Van Melsen, but they'd have to wait for the time being. "'And did that do the trick?' the investigator asked. "'Seemed to,' Winkler said. "'He's expecting you at nine. Van Melsen nodded, dropping the cigarette into the tumbler. Glancing at a large round clock on the wall, he said, "'We'd better be off, then. It's coming up to eight, and I'd like to take a quick look around the village.' Big Jim nodded nervously. "'Watch your back out there,' he warned gravely. Climbing to his feet, the investigator waved a dismissive hand. "'Don't worry about us, Mr. Winkler. We'll deal with old Blakely and get our hands on that book of his before anything else happens.' Kane, following Van Melsen's lead, climbed to his feet and stood by the investigator. His thoughts were all over the shop. What the heck was going on? He felt as though his life before today was merely a costume he'd worn— and this new life into which he'd innocently strolled, the naked truth beneath. What was this mysterious book that everybody was going on about? Corridors mysteriously extending? Doors appearing out of nowhere? As for the Owl Man, Kane didn't even know where to begin, as far as that was concerned. "'Come on, Norman,' the investigator said, and proceeded to thank the landlord of the Breadwinners for his time." "'We'll speak again soon,' he called over his shoulder, as he and Kane went in search of the exit. "'So what can you tell me about this Milleth?' Kane inquired as the pair left the pub. The chilly thoroughfare onto which they'd stepped was dark now, frequented by the occasional pedestrian, each of which strode in haste, as if afraid to be outdoors. "'It surfaced in the middle of the nineteenth century,' the investigator began, attributed to a magician of sorts known as Montaigne. Some say he moved in the same circles as another infamous magician by the name of Jericho. Sorcerella Jericho? Kane ventured. The very same, Van Melsen confirmed. I see you're not a stranger to this subject. The young bookworm shrugged his shoulders. In terms of rare books, he said, the Sorcerella seems to be more widely known than others. Van Melsen nodded, as the two strolled east along Bodmin Road. "'Let's have a look down here,' he said, keen to explore a shadowy ginnel between the breadwinners and a row of cottages. Montaigne kept a low profile, he went on, had an aversion to open spaces, this apparently due to a period of imprisonment in Persia. Milleth, essentially, is Montaigne's account of his travels throughout the Middle East— Encounters with nomads and traders along the Silk Road, expeditions into the Zagros Mountains, studies with the Magi. Van Melsen paused to inspect a curious bit of graffiti on the wall of the Ginnel, at the back of the pub. And here, once again, he said, indicating the graffiti, we have a bit of synchronicity. Montaigne's captors were said to be representatives of a cult, a group of fanatics fiercely dedicated to the writings of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, held deep underground in a system of caves in the Alborz range, 
Montaigne learned all manner of secret and terrible things, committing much of it to parchment, which he later managed to smuggle out with him. "'And the synchronicity?' Kane asked. "'See what's written here?' Van Melsen said, motioning towards the barely discernible etching. Kane moved closer in order to read it. "'Those Persian fanatics,' the investigator went on, "'proclaim themselves followers of Milleth.' The etching, Kane saw, read, "'Milleth lives.' A moment of silence followed, before he asked, "'Is Milleth a deity of some kind?' "'That's one of the questions we've come here to answer,' Van Melsen said, setting off again along the ginnel. "'And in doing so,' he added, "'we might just be able to purge this little village of the blight that has settled over it.' Kane simply nodded at this, digesting as he did so the curious information he'd just received. He'd heard of Jericho, of course. The Sorcerella was among a number of books his father had labelled taboo, too taboo for the likes of you, Richard had said to a fledgling Norman on more than one occasion. But his father had never mentioned this Montaigne character. An intriguing thought occurred to him. Could it be that a man imprisoned by a cult dedicated to the writings of the mad Arab might have had access to the Necronomicon? An earlier, uncorrupted edition, perhaps? And if so, what might the incarcerated magician have learned— from the original Kitab al-Azif. These thoughts allowed for a prolonged period of hush, as Cain and Van Melsen traversed the quiet settlement. The investigator led them on a seemingly random circuit through the village, heading north along Middle Street, east by Cardell Road, then back onto Bodmin Road by way of the Quay, crossing the wonderful stone bridge over Greenhill Brook. Just shy of 9 p.m., the pair had reached Greenhill Lodge off Bodmin Road, just southeast of the Breadwinners, when a young woman wrapped in a grey shawl emerged from a passage between the guesthouse and a disused cottage. And though the girl's face was partially obscured by the shaggy cloak, Kane saw her eyes, two shining sapphires lit by the glow of a street lamp. She moved with haste, her gaze fixing on Kane's for a fraction of a second, before crossing the road and vanishing into the night. "'Well, then,' Van Melsen said, snapping Kane out of the trance-like state the hustling lady had unwittingly caused. "'Let's see what old Blakely has in store for us.' Greenhill Lodge looked ancient, with its dated, half-timbered, black-and-white façade reminiscent of a Tudor house. Van Melsen stepped under the shelter of the jetty, and proceeded to knock at the frail-looking door. Moments later, an equally frail-looking figure answered the summons, and invited the men inside. And though Jim at the breadwinners had told old Blakely to expect one guest, the proprietor didn't look at all surprised to see the young man at Van Melsen's side. "'This way,' Blakely all but whispered, the words thick with phlegm. The pair were escorted to what passed for a reception area, a highly polished sideboard at the bottom of a crooked staircase— under the glare of an unforgiving bulb, the would-be guests got their first look at their would-be host. To refer to the man as old Blakely was an understatement. The character before them, now reaching for a very short pencil, stood hunched to the point of toppling forwards, his back curved like a bow. He was all skin and bone, dressed as he was in just a white vest and navy trousers, 
a pair of braces shouldering the burden of keeping the latter up. Arms like twigs, hands like claws, this ghost of a man could have passed for a thousand years old. His face had the likeness of a wrinkly mask, hanging loose from the musculature beneath, and his eyes, just like those of a bloodhound. Ancient Blakely, pencil and claw, proceeded to check the men into the lodge. There was no small talk, just the matter-of-fact approach of one who had conducted the process ad infinitum, and throughout it all, from the answering of the door to the completion of check-in, the ghastly host never once made eye contact with the arrivals. "'Can we talk about—' Van Melsen began, only to be interrupted. "'In the morning,' Blakely sputtered. "'Plenty of time for that in the morning.' The investigator simply nodded, throwing Kane a wide-eyed glance in the process. Kane shrugged his shoulders, as the old man— lowering his upper body like an antique crane, rummaged for a couple of room-keys in a drawer of the sideboard. "'I'll show you to your rooms,' he said, spinning very carefully on his heel. Van Melsen rolled his eyes, as Blakely started for the crooked stairs. Kane just about managed to suppress a chuckle. 